Good morning and welcome to church. Welcome to Chester Mountain Church. My name's Jared Cagle. If I don't know you, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. We've made it all the way to the 13th chapter. Some of you are superstitious and you're already scared. Three of you, okay. I, um, this is not, this has nothing to do with what I'm about to say, but I lived on uh, the 14th floor of an apartment in Atlanta for like four years. And the whole time I would ride the elevator and I just couldn't understand why the 12th floor and the 14th floor with only numbers on there, there was actually no 13th floor. And the doorman, after like a year, I asked him like, what's that about? And he's like, yeah, it's superstition. Nobody's gonna buy a condo on the, on the 13th floor. And I was like, oh, so that means I live on the 13th floor. That's fantastic. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 13. This is affectionately known as the love chapter. It's all about love. If you've been to a wedding ever, you've probably heard this one. Yep. It's all about love. Affectionately known. Uh, if you have an ESV or another translation that's similar, you probably have the title on the top of this chapter, The Way of Love. I like that title. Titles aren't divinely inspired, but sometimes they're helpful. And in this case, it is helpful because the love that we're talking about today is agape, which is the divine form of love, the selfless form of love, the love that beckons us to action. In fact, it's only in action that this love is brought forth. And so the way of love is a good way to describe that. I think a lot of times when we hear the word love, we either, we have a lot of different responses, right? Because we've overused that in our culture. We've overused that in our current world. The, uh, a lot of groups have adopted this word and they've mis used it. We don't really understand the full weight of what love actually is. And if we really understood the full weight, sometimes I don't know that we would be excited to talk about it because the truth is there's a cost associated with living a life like this, of walking out the way of love. Before we go any further, I just want to make you guys very comfortable. If your kid cries, it's all right. You know, it's going to happen. COVID. You know, we're in the middle of this together. I got three of them. If, if anybody's crying, it's probably one of my three. So it'll be okay. Just let it happen. We're going to dive into the word. I'm going to try to keep it brief so that we can go to lunch, you know, but if the spirit gets going. Hang with me because today we're talking about something that can transform absolutely everything. I believe that it has for me and I believe it can for you. So Paul is writing this letter. Remember, we've, we've been in this for several weeks. He's writing to the Corinthian church. And last week, Brian taught about how the people were focusing on the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of God, the, the gifts that they were given. They were focusing a lot of attention and a lot of energy on the gifts and not enough attention on the giver. So contextually, we've got to realize that chapter 12 is flowing into chapter 13. In, in the original writing of this letter, it wouldn't have been divided up necessarily the same way that we divide it. So think about it in terms of what we just studied last week, that the gifts of 
of the Holy Spirit were, were, being, were being manifested, but they were being misused and they were being appropriated in this way where it was chaotic. They would come together in services and it's like, who's up next? You know, who can show me what they can do? And it became this thing where everybody wanted to show off their gift and nobody was focusing on the giver of those gifts. And so Paul came into that directly as he always does. And then we find ourselves now at chapter 13. I want to point your attention before we go any further to the end of chapter 12. Because remember, these sections aren't divinely inspired. So this verse 31 of chapter 12 leads us directly into the first verse of chapter 13. Paul says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. And still I will show you a more excellent way. Still, I will show you a more excellent way. The more excellent way he's talking about is love. The way of love. Agape love. Paul's painting a portrait in chapter 13. A portrait of of love and there is a subject of this portrait there is it, it, there is a person at the center of this portrait and as we read this chapter you're going to notice that that person at the center of that portrait is not me and it is not you <laughs> because we can't measure up to all of these characteristics and all of these things that he's laying out in chapter 13 but there is one who did and who does measure up to this portrait there is one who sits before the artist that's painting this portrait of love and is perfectly and intimately and divinely love and that person is Jesus spoiler that's what this whole thing's about. Jesus is the centerpiece of this portrait. By the way, Jesus is the centerpiece of the whole Bible. So if you're reading Genesis, you can find it pointing back to Jesus. If you're reading Leviticus, I know, you can still find it pointing back to Jesus. Anywhere in the Bible, it's, there's a central theme. It's painting a portrait. And here in this chapter, a beautiful portrait is being painted by Paul. And he's defining love only by using verbs. I want you to notice that as we go on. This is good. This is uncomfortable, but this is good. Paul uses all verbs in describing love because the truth is love, you've heard it, is a verb. Love acts. Love does. Love is not stagnant. You can't describe it statically. You have to describe it with its action, with what it does. And Paul's using verbs very clearly all the way through because love lives. He's getting to the bottom of the whole thing in this chapter. And he's saying love is the root. This is the origin of our behavior. This is underneath everything that we do. This is our motive. This is our heart. This is our why. This love is the root of all healthy Fruit. I'm going to say that several times because they tell me you miss it the first couple. Love is the root of all healthy fruit. Remember that the Corinthians were focusing on the gifts rather than the giver. And they were growing exponentially. They were growing. They were having beautiful services and they were enthusiastic and energetic. And they're having this big old time and everything looks great on the outside. And there's a lot of Growth, but this is what's tricky. Growth can be deceiving. 
Because we can be expansive and broad and even this place, if you think about it in our terms, we could be the biggest church in the county. We could have the most numbers, but not be rooted and established in love. Where all of healthy fruit abound from. This is what happens when you focus on the gift and not the giver. And that's what the Corinthian church was doing and Paul's cutting to the heart of it all. We see four primary points in this chapter. Some of you are already excited because I got points for the first time in a year. <laughs> You've been wanting me to preach this way. Well, I'm giving it to you, okay? There's four things that we see in this text. Verses one through three, verses four through seven, verses eight through 12, and verse 13 are all broken down with a different sort of subject involved in that, a different title for each section. I'm gonna give you them real quick and then we're gonna unpack them. The first one in verses one through three that we see is love is absolutely necessary. Love is absolutely necessary. Verses four through seven, we see the second one, that love is personally necessary characterized, personally characterized. The third one we see in verses eight through 12 is that love is eternally permanent, eternally permanent. And then in the last verse, finally, the fourth one we see is that love is entirely supreme. It is preeminent. It is supreme. It is above all. Necessary, personalized, permanent, and supreme. That's what we're going to see today. This love that we're talking about in this text is agape. Agape, as we mentioned before, divine love, selfless love, selflessly motivated. The root of this verb comes from benevolence, charity, good will, doing things out of good will for another, doing things to benefit someone else. This very word in its fabric beckons action. This very word in the fabric of its origin, it's talking about benevolence, doing something for someone else when you can't expect to receive anything in return, doing something for someone that maybe they can't do for themselves. This is the type of love that we're talking about here. John Bunyan, incredible preacher, author. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, Go get it and read it. It's ancient and old, and it's going to be hard to read, but it is gloriously rich. This is a quote from one of his poems. John Bunyan said, You have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. You've not lived today until you've done something for someone who can never repay you. This is at the heart of the word agape, love, that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. This agape implies action because love is alive and active. I want you to look at John chapter 21 really quick. This is an awesome text. Uh, John chapter 21, if you, if you have time to go there real quick, you should because I am Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John right before Acts, the beginning of the New Testament, stall tactics. John chapter 21 John chapter 21. Uh, so Jesus is appearing to his disciples here. They're uh, at the Sea of Tiberias. And it's really interesting that my pages are stuck together right here on this one. And it's just not going to work out. So the, he's at the Sea of Tiberias. And the disciples are there fishing. They went back to their original trade. There is so much here I want to preach, but I don't have time. And Jesus appears to them after his resurrection. And what he does is he sets up a charcoal fire. 
He says, I'm going to cook you breakfast, and we're, going to, and we're going to talk for a little bit. They didn't stick together. Look at that. I thought they did. They didn't. I've got it right here. John 21. It's the last chapter of the book of John. Jesus comes to them, sets up a charcoal fire. Anybody grill on charcoal? Four people. Charcoal gives you that extra flavor. Brandon Sloan grills directly on the charcoal sometimes. It's called caveman style. You ever heard of that? It's a real thing. Don't buy the Instalite, though, because they didn't have that when they were cavemen. So that, you know, that adds some things you don't want to eat. But if you get the specific kind of charcoal, you can put it straight on, gives it a good flavor. I don't know. Classes Wednesday night when COVID's over, Brandon. Cooks a great steak. Charcoal is important, believe it or not, because the last time Peter was at, the char- was at a charcoal fire was when he was denying Jesus three times a few chapters earlier. And Jesus comes back with all sorts of parallels and he lights up a charcoal fire, not a coincidence. And he's, t- he's saying without saying it, Peter, I love you. Peter, I know what you've done. I'm meeting you right where you are. Come on in. There's grace. There's food to be had. And this food will give you life forever. All kinds of parallels. Can't preach about it. Don't have time. Verse 15. So they've, they've just finished breakfast. And Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And Peter said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus said that to Peter. Sorry. Second time, Simon, do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times, notice. And Peter was grieved because he had said that to him the third time, do you love me? And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What is Jesus saying? Saying a lot, saying the same thing, feels like the same thing. What are you saying, Jesus? He's saying, show me. I know that you're saying you love me. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. You know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. You know I love you. But it was the same mouth that denied Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I got to have your action. I got to have you show me. This agape is more than just talk. This agape is not even a feeling. This is action. This is what love does. Peter, I'm going to build my church upon this rock. I need you to show me. I need you to tend and feed and care for my sheep. I need you to pastor my flock. Are you going to show me? Because love is an action. Love is a verb. Love does. We see this all throughout Scripture. Not just here in 1 Corinthians 13, which I recognize we haven't read yet. Don't worry, I will read it. In Ephesians 2, we also see it. Verses 4 and 5, all throughout the chapter. Please read it later. It's the most glorious. I love this chapter. I love it. But in verses 4 and 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great Love, agape, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ because of the great love. Because points us to the root and the root is love. And when love is the root, there is healthy fruit. 
This is the type of love that we're talking about. First Corinthians eight, several weeks ago, we studied this. I was preaching love builds up. What does love do? Love builds up. Jesus is building something here, quite literally, individually and collectively, but he's doing it on love. And where there is no love, there is no fruit from him. More on that in a minute. So we got we to gotta pay attention to this. Will you read chapter 13 with me? I'm going to read all of it because it is awesome. First Corinthians chapter 13. Try to stick with me if you can't. Uh, have your wife hold your eyes open or something. First Corinthians 13, starting in verse one. This is the ESV. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. How are we doing? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Anybody measuring up? Love never ends, verse eight. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but, the perfect, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known and the capstone of it all in verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Paul is setting out to prove to us that love is at the root of all the healthy fruit. And love is necessary. Love is personal. Love is permanent and love is supreme. So what we see in this text, love is the root of all healthy fruit. Don't forget, he's writing to the Corinthian church who is struggling to get back to the root. And so I was thinking about that and I was in my yard and the last couple of years, I've got this rose bush that's massive and it's down by the street. So I really didn't even know that it was my rose bush from the start, but nobody was taking care of it. So I figured that I should be the one to do that. This thing is massive, like from that, well, it's really big, okay? Big rose bush. I thought literally, just to give you an idea, I thought it was about eight different rose bushes, just kind of clumped together, broad, lots of, lots of roses coming out of it, very mature. And I was like, man, I got, a big, I got a lot of roses. This is great. You know, I'll pick them, give them to my wife, really sweet, love, you know, type of thing. Happened a few times. And so I'm uh, pruning this bush because I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just clipping, you know. This looks broad over here. Let's trim it back. This isn't really producing like it should over here. Trim it back. And then the more I look at it, the more I see that there's a lot of roses and it's very broad and expansive, but the roses really aren't that big. 
Like when you go and buy roses from Kroger, they're a lot bigger than what I'm producing in my yard, you know? I thought this thing was going to save me some money at the store, but it's producing these little bitty, you know, like there's thousands of them, but they're this big. And so I'm like, what's going on? So then I finally get underneath. See where we're going with this. I finally get underneath and I quit dealing with all this out here and I get underneath and I look at where the root balls are. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Horticulture. Isn't that what this is? No. What is this? Nobody knows. Okay. Rose bushing, you know. What is horticulture? Okay, so you get underneath and you see the, and you see the, uh, get back to the word, Jared, get back to the word, get back to the word. You get underneath and you see the roots and I see that there's only three root balls where I thought there was about seven or eight and I start looking at it and I'm looking at the branches and they're going like, some of them are so mature and they're growing from the root, but they're going sideways like five or six feet. And then from there, there's more branches coming up out of it. And it looks like a whole bush over here starting at this end as if that's a root ball. And every direction, there's all these branches that are growing horizontally. And some of them are even underground. And they're so big, these branches. And then there's little branches that are sprouting out. And then the buds are on the end. But they're looking a lot different than they would have if they were closer to the root. You see what I'm saying? So I wrote a couple things down that I saw and learned from my rose bush. This is the first thing I wrote down. The further, thing you, the further you get from the root, the greater the deviation from its nutrients. Pretty simple. The further you get away, the less nutrients you will get from the root and the less fruit you will be able to produce. The second thing I learned is that the further you get from the root, the more temptation you will have to stray. Because when you get far from your origin and from the root that gives you nutrients and gives you life and gives you power, you don't hear it the same way. You don't communicate with it the same way. You don't have the same level of relationship because you're distanced from the root and you're producing fruit, but it's straying and it's going all over the place and it's not very big and it's not traveling in the right direction. The further you get from the fruit, the more you grow in the wrong direction the more you grow in the wrong areas. And this is what happens when what I did is I focused on the fruit and I started clipping from the outside instead of dealing with the root. And so I just perpetuated the problem. And that's what the Corinthian church was doing too. They became infatuated with the fruit and they began to neglect and stray and overlook the root. So here's the warning. I want you to hear this. You can be growing and dying at the same time. I hate to show The Walking Dead. I don't even know if it's still airing. But like these people are dead and they're still walking, you know. And I think there's a very clear correlation to being dead spiritually like a zombie walking around sort of alive, but not at all. We can be growing. We can be as a church. We can be growing exponentially. We can have the biggest church in, in America and still be dying because we're splintered off from the root. And we got these fruits and it looks good. It looks really big and broad, but it's not as healthy as it should be because we're so distanced from the root. We've got to be careful when we're focusing on the fruit. We've got to be careful being excited by growth when it's in the wrong direction. 
We've got to be careful being passionate about measuring the reach of a tree rather than the health of its fruit. Because what happens is the limbs start to get mature and they start to droop. They start to fall. And then what eventually happens is they get so far distanced from the root that they were planted in that they, they completely lose sight of what they were created for. And instead of being planted firmly in the throne room of grace, giving praise to God, giving praise to Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne forever, we will be off in some way growing a church in all sorts of ways on our gifts rather than on his glory. We can be growing and we can be dying at the same time. Be careful lest your spiritual maturity be veiled by a barrage of amusing practices. Be careful lest your mastery of the gifts become the very thing that separates you from the master himself. Be careful. This is the difference between growing the gift and growing from the root. Instead of focusing on your growth and your fruit, focus on the root because, the, because love is the root of all healthy fruit. Paul's getting to the heart of the matter, to the root of our desires, to the root of our motivation, and the foundation, the bedrock of the church. So let's look at this a little deeper for a second, right? The first, the first section, love is absolutely necessary. Verse one of, of chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Those were musical instruments that they used back in those days. I know you don't know, have any idea what a gong is. Just know that it made some percussive music. It kept the beat and it was really loud and it could be distracting in a hurry. You are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal if you have not love. Verse two, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Paul's getting to the being of a person now. You can have all this stuff. You can have all these powers. You can have the most faith in the world where you can move mountains, which, by the way, is just the faith of a mustard seed. We could talk about that for a while. You can have all this in the world. You can have it. But if you don't have love, then you are nothing. That right there is tough to hear. Focus on the fruit and you miss the root. Verse three, if I give away all that I have, if I give it away, now he's really getting serious because this is at the heart of agape. Remember, giving it all away. If I give it all away to the poor, to the needy, to who, to who needs it, if I, if, if I give it all away and if I deliver up my body to be burned as a martyr, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Without love, you have nothing. Without love, you are nothing. And without love, you gain nothing. Any questions, you know? Paul's just like, Boom. Okay. Now let me tell you who love is. Verses four through seven. This is Paul. Love is personally characterized. This is who love is. He lists out 15 descriptions of love. I'm going to go through them real quick. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. And love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own way. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And it endures all things. Fifteen characteristics I If that's a grade, if that's a test, if that's what I've got to be and how I've got to live, I failed a long time ago. I was failing before I had kids, and then when I had kids, it was game over, you know? Nobody knows. Okay. Brandon Sloan knows. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not resentful. It's not provoked. Well... Who is this? Who is this portrait? Who is Paul painting? Because the truth is the revival we need, the revival that we pray for, the revival we sing about, the revival of the Holy Spirit is not possible without this. Is not possible without this kind of love. So who is that? Because we, we, need, we need that. Is there anyone Worthy to open the scroll. Is there anyone that can measure up to this? First John four, eight through nine. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was here with us made personally, intimately among us that God sent his only son, Jesus, into the world so that we might live through him. Who is this? Who who are these 15 characteristics talking about? They're talking about Jesus. And then John, John, the apostle, writes in his first letter, he's saying, you can live through him. Can you measure up on a test? No. Is your righteousness being substituted for Christ's so that you have this kind of love living inside of you? Yes, absolutely. This is why Jesus came. This is why God sent his son. Let's go back to John chapter 15, if you're with me. We're going to go back to John. Um, This is a beautiful part of scripture. Most of you probably already know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining it because it's beautiful on its own. John chapter 15, starting in verse one, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you were clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Love is the root of all the healthy fruit. We can't bear fruit apart from the vine. This is the same message Jesus is saying it. I didn't just pull it out of you know where. I got it from the Bible. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Yes, he's talking about hell. 
Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. They will know you by your fruit. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse nine, going back as the father has loved me, so have I loved you abide in in my love. Abide in my love. Jesus, the vine. Jesus, love personified. Abide in my love. Love is personally characterized. Love is also eternally permanent. Look at verses 8 through 12 again in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is permanent. Paul writes, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will all pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Because now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. And now I know in part, but then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully Known. Love is eternally permanent. That wouldn't be good news if it wasn't for Jesus. But now, just as we have been fully known by God, we will fully know in the age to come. What is this about? This is about abiding in the vine. This is about getting back to the root. This is the most important message that we could ever preach about. This, is, this should not get old to us. When we hear the word love, we want to talk about feelings. That's not what we're talking about. Love is action. The fourth thing we see in verse 13 is love is entirely supreme. Entirely supreme. Verse 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest, the preeminent, the one above them all. Is faith important? Absolutely. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Is hope important? Absolutely. We have a hope that goes beyond the grave. Faith, hope, love. Love is the greatest of these three. Preeminent, Un, It's preeminent and it's the root. It's underneath it all. It's in and through all. It is personified in the person and the work of Jesus. There was an old hymn writer, an old preacher from Scotland named George Matheson. Some of you may have heard the hymn that he wrote a long time ago in the late 1800s called, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. We haven't sang it here to my knowledge. We probably won't. The melody is not great. And the language is a lot of these and thous. And, you know, everybody under the age of 60 is probably not going to love that. But you never know. We may do it because this is rich. And I didn't know the story. I've heard the song, didn't know the story. George Matheson, the author of this song, he was a preacher in Scotland. But before he was a preacher... And before he was a leader of the church in Scotland, which, by the way, many said that he was one of the most prolific leaders in Scotland for the church. Before he was any of that, he was 20 years old 
and he was engaged to be married to the love of his life. He found her. He'd asked her to marry him. She had said, yes, they've got plans coming. They're going to be married. And then he finds out that he's going blind degeneratively. There's nothing they can do about it. He will be permanently blind in a very short time. And so he gives the news to his soon-to-be wife. And she immediately says, I cannot be married to a man who is going to be blind. I'm going to leave you. Devastated. Absolutely devastated. She leaves. He's alone. He doesn't have many people in his life. And then when he throws himself into his books, his writing, his studies, he ends up writing a couple of the most influential theological books, especially in Europe. And then he gets to a place where he's fully blind, can't see, really difficult to write, impossible to read, needs a lot of help. Called to preach, but blind, needs a lot of help to do that. And his sister, who he's close to, steps up and says that she will be his caretaker. She'll be there with him for the rest of his days. She will show him this type of love that we're talking about. And everything's going great. The church is growing. He's got 1,500 people coming to church. He's preaching to blind, leading, pastoring effectively. And his sister is the bedrock for that, the root for that, because she was showing agape to him. And then one day she falls in love as well. And he's happy for her and they're planning the wedding and they're walking through all of these hectic days, you know, of planning a wedding and getting it ready. And the night before it all dawns on him that he is going to be without the person that has been there for him through it all. She's going to leave as well. And in that moment rushed back the memories of his ex-fiance who left him because of his blindness. And he's looking around and he's like, I got nothing. I have no one. The everyone has left me. What is love? Where do I turn? And he writes this hymn. He said that he wrote it in five minutes with no edits. I love that because it just poured out of him. It just poured out of him. God had been developing what this was going to be for 20 years, ever since he got rocked by the news of his, ex, of his fiance leaving him. And he writes these words to his savior. He writes these words to his God and bear with the language. Try to get underneath it. It is glorious. This is what George Matheson penned that night at the age of 40. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thy ocean's depths its flow may richer and fuller be. Oh, light that followest me all my way. I yield my flickering torch to thee, my heart restores its borrowed ray that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. Oh, joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. 
Oh cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. In the moment where all love, all, everyone who he thought loved him had left by different circumstances, sure, but he was left alone. He realized that there was a love, there is a love that will never let him go. And it culminated in this moment where he saw the cross of Christ and he saw the blood that ran down for him and it dropped far enough to get in the dust and he saw in that red blood blossoming life that will ever be eternal life because of the blood. The same blood that will never lose its power for you and for me if you trust and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the person and the work. His death, his burial, his resurrection, the hope for all of us. The blood will never lose its power. Look at Romans 5 really quickly, verse 6. It's, it's familiar. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Wow, how many of you are glad that you didn't have to be strong for Christ to die? How many of you are glad that you can get to the foot of the cross and you can be laying in the dust as George Matheson was and the blood is going to reach you there? You don't have to climb up the tree to receive the blood. You can lay there humbly and meek and broken and he will fill you with everything that you need. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps one would dare even to die for a good person. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, not after the sin. Not after you cleaned it up a little bit. Not after you got your life kind of in order and took a shower and came in here with your best clothes on. No, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. While I was still a sinner, while I was still weak, Christ died for me. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is about abiding in the vine. And in the same chapter where Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Verse 12 says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love does not seek its own way. Love is not resentful or rude. This portrait of love, the love that bears all things, that hopes all things, that believes all things, that endures all things. You're saying, Jared, I don't measure up to that. That's okay because Jesus does. And he died with that measure completely and fully. And God looked on it and said, that is enough. 
to pay the sin debt that all of humanity owes. You don't measure up, he does. Trust in that work, trust in that glory today. Put your hope and your trust in him. This is the portrait of love that Paul is painting in 1 Corinthians 13, Jesus Christ. What what are you gonna do with that portrait? Call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved if, if for the first time today, that's you. I, want you. I want to urge you to repent and believe. Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will have everlasting life. And if you've already made that commitment with your life, if you've already been following Jesus, I wanna ask you today, Are you abiding in the vine? Are you connected to the root? Because love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Feelings come and feelings go, but love never ends. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So Christian today, are you abiding in him? Are you abiding in the vine? They will know us by our fruit. And we can't sit in our chairs any longer and hope that they will come to us. We've got to go to the world. Connected to the vine. Jesus doesn't stay here confined by these walls. He goes with us. He's already done it. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's time that the church becomes the on the forefront of all that we're seeing in the world because we have a love that is victorious and will always be reigning forevermore. This altar will be open if you need to come and do some work. We'll be up here if you need to talk to anybody or pray with anybody. During this last song as we sing, I hope that you will press in deeper to the Holy Spirit of God and what he's saying to you. Father God in heaven, we are so grateful that you have loved us first. We didn't deserve it. We were too weak. But even while we were weak, you died for us. So God, I pray today that that knowledge, that that understanding would permeate deep inside of our bones, that we would be, that we would come back to the root that we would come back to the vine today, that we would be humbled by the opportunity to be connected to the supreme and total life source, even in the midst of our weakness and our uncertainty. So God, I pray that you would give it in full today. Pour out your love, pour out your spirit on this church, God. If anyone be hurting in this place, if anyone be sick in this place, if anyone be addicted in this place, I pray that they would come to you for all that they need, that they would put their hope and their trust in you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray, amen.